Hello, welcome to the podcast of Faith Community Fellowship in Ellsworth, Maine. This is Pastor Todd. Typically, our podcast is basically the recording of our teaching from Sunday that's recorded live in our auditorium. Every once in a while, uh, there's a glitch somewhere. There's a technical thing that happens, and we don't capture the audio. That happened uh, this past Sunday on November 25th. And uh, a lot of times if that happens, and it happens rarely, I must say, but if it happens, typically we just let it go and just like, okay, that was for the people who were in the room on Sunday. But every once in a while, uh, like I've done this before, where if I've been teaching in a series and we've had an issue with audio recording, I will come in later in the week and record that message again to keep the continuity of a series together for those who are listening that way. And then this past Sunday was not really part of a series, but it was what a lot of us in leadership consider a benchmark day for us as a church. Uh, the teaching uh, was something that we feel like needs to be on record for the church to hear, to come back to, uh, to keep us on track. And uh, so I was talking about this just the other day with, with our friend Craig, with Craig Cousins. Craig's one of our elders, and we were having this discussion about, you know, having to go back and record this and all that. And uh, he's like, well, have you ever thought about doing this in an interview format? I'm like, I have, and I think it'd be really cool. I think Sunday's topic would really lend itself to that. So uh, that's what we're doing today. We're going to uh, have a little interview. Craig's uh, gonna ask me a bunch of questions and I'm gonna try best I can to go back to the content from Sunday's teaching in my answers to his questions. All right, so thanks for listening and uh, let's dive into this, Craig. Fire away. So on Sunday, you talked about leadership in the church. And you talked about the importance of understanding the difference between open hand and closed hand issues. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, when it comes to uh, what we believe about doctrine and biblical teaching and instruction and practices in the church, it's important right from the outset to distinguish between doctrine and dogma. Uh, dogma is taking secondary issues and making them primary. Um, for several years now, uh, we've been using the language open hand and closed hand. Open hand issues are those issues where Bible-believing Christians can debate over and even disagree over, but not divide over. The closed hand issues are those issues we really have to remain committed to. And, and obviously there are some teachings in the Bible, uh, like beliefs uh, about the end times and Jesus' return, we call that eschatology, or speaking in tongues and what you believe about the particulars of creation, for example. Some things like that where you can love Jesus and believe the Bible and disagree on some things and still be a Christian. And there are other issues like the doctrine of the Trinity or the resurrection of Jesus or the deity of Jesus where we have to be very clear on those things. So uh, we don't claim that every theological or doctrine discussion is cut and dried. The fact that brilliant, spirit-filled scholars committed to the inerrancy of Scripture, and that's really important, but they land on both sides of some issues. It points to the complexity of the challenge of interpreting and applying Scripture. So we just want to respect people who disagree with us. Closed-hand issues deal with the essentials of the faith, uh, Scripture, the Godhead, God's plan of salvation through Christ, the Son of God, you know, who is Jesus? Scripture is categorically clear on those issues. But there are issues that are not emphatically clear that lend themselves to robust discussion and debate. We shouldn't be afraid of that. And the doctrinal positions about things like 
again, end time spiritual gifts, uh, modes of baptism, particulars about the Lord's Supper, uh, leadership structures in the church, all those would be examples of open hand issues. Uh, which really just reminds me of the importance of this quote that's most often attributed to uh, St. Augustine. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in everything, love. So, uh, what we're talking about uh, is important, but honestly, there's lots of room for interpretation, lots of room for different application. These are really matters of practice. So it's important to talk about, it's really important to be humble enough to acknowledge that maybe there's room for our position to evolve, but it's an open-hand issue. So like where we land today on this topic, honestly, looks a little different from where we landed 20 years ago. And it might look a little different in the future, and that's okay. It's not a core doctrine, it's a practice. It's an open-hand issue, so it's okay. And we're, what we're talking about is leadership in the church. But when we talk about leadership in the church, here's a closed-hand truth on this topic that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Not the Pope, not Rick Warren, not Andy Stanley, not the president of a denomination, not your pastors, not the head deacon. Jesus is the head of the church. And as the head of the church, we believe that Jesus is constantly looking for a few good people to lead his church on earth and to model the godly attitudes and actions that should mark all mature Christians. And he's selective about who should care for and nurture his people. There are biblical qualifications that are extensive and specific and essential to the spiritual health of a congregation. And the compromise on the standards is to risk crisis of character and morale and unity within the body and ultimately uh, diminished effectiveness and a diminished testimony in the world. Now the New Testament presents several different leadership roles in the church. Can you give a little clarity on that? Yeah, there are at least uh, two types of church leaders that are given special attention in the New Testament, uh, and they are deacons and elders. In the New Testament, all churches had multiple elders, but not all churches had deacons. In fact, we don't have deacons at Faith Community, but we do have people who perform the function of a deacon just by the way that they express and act on their gifts in the life of the church. They just don't have the title. Now, the term deacon comes from a Greek word that means one who serves. The seven men mentioned in Acts 6, verses 1 through 6, functioned as deacons um, in a limited sense as they assisted in the distribution of food to some needy widows. And from what we read in Acts 6 and elsewhere in the New Testament, as local churches were established and grew, the official role of deacon was to assist the elders so that they could give themselves to teaching and to prayer. And from passages like first, uh, Philippians 1 and 1 Timothy 3, uh, we can assume then that deacons were basically administrators of the many details of the life of the church. An elder, if you go back to Old Testament times, an elder was an older man who held a position of leadership over a family or over a tribe. That's where the idea comes from. So like Moses, for example, was assisted by elders. We see that in Exodus 3 and Exodus 24. These men, by virtue of their age and their experience, were respected leaders. That's the key. They were respected leaders. Because age alone does not guarantee maturity, we know that, or spirituality. A relatively young person could qualify. In the New Testament, when Paul told Timothy, don't let anyone think less of you because you're, wrong, because you're young, don't let anyone think less of you because you're young, Timothy was probably in his mid-30s, and he held a position of authority over churches in the area around Ephesus. But he was to show his... 
uh, his godly life, by his godly life that he should be followed. So at Faith Community, we are led by elders. What do you see as the biblical responsibilities of elders? Yeah, that's basically, uh, you know, what's an elder supposed to do? Um, some churches consider the term elder to be synonymous with pastor. Other churches, including Faith Community Fellowship, uh, choose a group of men and women to serve as elders, sometimes with a, held eld a head elder or a pastor assuming the role of leading in the teaching and preaching. Um, but elder, pastor, or shepherd, uh, or overseer, that's sometimes translated bishop or presbyter, depending on your translation of the Bible, those are all terms that are used to describe different aspects of the same office in the church. As far as responsibilities, number one, a lead, uh, elder is to lead the church with a servant attitude. We see that in 1 Timothy 5 and Hebrews 13 and 1 Peter 5. Second, uh, the elder is to equip the church for ministry and service to others. It's in Ephesians 4, 1 Timothy 4, 2 Timothy 4. Number three, to protect the church from false doctrine or distorted doctrine. A um, bunch of uh, references on that. Acts 20, 1 Timothy 1, 1 Timothy 6, 2 Timothy 4, Titus 1. And finally, to protect the unity of the body by protecting the church from the work of unruly or divisive people. Um, we see examples of that teaching in 2 Timothy 2 and Titus 3. And obviously... There are qualifications for church leadership. And churches land in all kinds of different places on what these qualifications are. So talk about where we've landed on qualifications and what the biblical basis for that is. Yeah, the biblical standards for church leadership are personal character qualities, not college or seminary degrees, not business or administrative skills not personal charisma. Paul said to search deeper, to look for character qualities that reveal a deep-seated faith that reflects a person's integrity, maturity, stability. The standards for elders are high because they're to be examples to the church. First Peter 5 said to lead by your own good example. The qualifications for church leaders, for the most part, are characteristics of a person who is taking his or her faith in Christ seriously, or just growing in the knowledge of God, maturing in their Christ-likeness. But this can be a real challenge for us, especially in church in America, um, because uh, we lean heavily into our identity as a democracy uh, and into the process that makes us a democracy, which is free elections. So during local, you know, state, national election campaigns, it really doesn't matter what level anymore, voters are barraged by the claims of candidates who attempt to convince the electorate that they're the most qualified to be whatever, you know, president, senator, legislator, governor, mayor, councilman, some other public official. Unfortunately, we know this to be true, that the winner isn't always the most qualified person. The advantage usually goes to the one with the best media image. <coughs> Excuse me. That scene should be very different in a fellowship of believers who are selecting church leaders. Politicking and boasting and power games and popularity contests have no place in the church. It's about personal character and spiritual maturity. Those should be the key issues in, for the selection of leaders. And the process for that selection should follow the example of Scripture. In Acts chapter 6, the believers and the apostles agreed that there was a need for additional leadership. So the apostles called a meeting of the church and instructed the believers to begin a search for well-respected men who were full of the Holy Spirit. And the church agreed upon who those men should be and they presented them to the apostles and the apostles prayed and set them apart. 
So at Faith Community, the process is this. First, the church and the leaders identify the need. That can come from people in the church who are you know, part of the congregation. It can come from the leadership in the church that identifying the need for additional leadership. And then the church speaks to the selection of those individuals. We don't do that in a public meeting format. It's a process in a lot of churches, but we've chosen to give the church a voice in this process by a private conversation, like a phone call or an email or face-to-face -face conversation. And then the leaders pray and ordain. Um, as far as qualifications, the most extensive list of qualifications for church leaders is in 1 Timothy 3, the first 13 verses, and Titus 1, 5 through 9. So several years ago, uh, in the early days of this church, we put together a document outlining those qualifications. And the scripture uh, addresses these qualifications, and this is kind of the summary of that, the bullet list of those, uh, are a good reputation, self-control, godly values, a spiritually healthy home, a proven mature faith, and a teachable spirit. On Sunday, you spend a good portion of your teaching addressing the issue of women in leadership. Want to dive into that? We've been discussing the topic of women in leadership in the church in our leadership circles for quite a while. We haven't really had this conversation uh, with the church uh, in the Sunday morning setting. And I know for uh, some people maybe listening, depending on your church background, depending on the level to which you've been involved in leadership in the church, especially in what we used to call the evangelical church in America, you might be thinking, oh Todd, it's 2018, is this really an issue we need to be talking about? The answer to that is yes, because typically the church, you may have found this to be true, that the church typically doesn't function at the leading edge of cultural evolution which is too bad really because there was a time when the church affected cultural change rather than simply responded to it. But here's, here's something we've learned. We understand that culture requires us to have new conversations, but culture does not define our position. Culture, I'm just gonna repeat that. Culture requires us to have new conversations, but culture does not define our position. And the truth of the matter is, Sometimes it takes culture starting to change for the church to begin asking the questions that we should have been asking all along. So um, in the Bible, uh, we have the Old Testament, we have the New Testament, or New Covenant. And uh, I want to talk about this New Covenant in, re in, in regards to uh, this topic of women in leadership. The New Covenant is the context in which we live. It was inaugurated and realized in the person of Jesus. He came to fulfill and replace the Old Covenant. And I know we sometimes uh, kind of resist that idea that He came to replace the Old Covenant, but that's exactly what He came to do. He made peace with us, or for us, with God through His blood on the cross. He reconciled us. He presented us before His Father as holy and blameless and beyond reproach. He took our sin to the cross with Him. Our old self was crucified and buried with Him. And when He rose from the dead, He ushered in the new covenant. And He made it possible for us to live this abundant, new, eternal life that He talked about. And in the moment that we trust Jesus for salvation, all of this work at the cross is applied to us. We're raised to new life to live in the here and now in the realities of the new covenant. Living in union with Christ, responding to the indwelling spirit, man, that is the substance of the new covenant. And as each new day begins, we wake up 
as new covenant believers, living out the blessings of this new life in Christ. And along with this new life in Christ comes some new paradigms and some new attitudes. So why is this important? Because the new covenant brought new attitudes, brought new perspectives, brought new customs concerning the intrinsic value and the beneficial involvement of all people, all ethnicities, all socioeconomic levels, and for, specifically for this discussion, for women. That's everyone. Like everything else that is, we find in the New Covenant, this centers around Jesus. In Jesus' day, the prevailing cultural attitudes towards women were, were nothing less than appalling. Men weren't even permitted to speak to women in public, and yet Jesus spoke truth publicly to the woman at the well in Samaria. He had women in his traveling group. His treatment, his approval, his recognition of women was nothing less than culturally radical. So the night Jesus treated Mary as a disciple and allowed her to learn at his feet was a watershed moment for women, and it ought to be a strong message for the church. In Ephesians 2, Paul argues that Christ has destroyed the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. This would have been a, a powerful metaphor for anyone living in Jerusalem since there was a literal wall at the temple that kept Gentiles out of the temple proper. <coughs> and for us, as non-Jewish believers, this is a big deal to us. But there was also a physical dividing wall between men and women in the temple. Walls divided the temple between the court of the Gentiles and the court of the women, where Jewish men and women could both enter, but a Gentile could not. But the court of the women was as far as women could go into the temple. Jewish men could go farther. And Jesus, with the new covenant, destroyed that dividing wall between men and women in his life through personal contact, through personal relationships, through respect for women, and he completed all of that in his death through the blood of the new covenant. As the... Uh, church started to grow, women were quickly introduced to leadership roles in a radical departure from the cultural expressions of the day. When we get the, the cultural view of what was going on with the roles of men and women in that, in that day, this is, this is incredible. And there's tons of evidence that women served in a variety of leadership roles in the church. In the New Testament, after the birth of the church, women were apostles, they were prophets, they were deacons, not deaconesses. There's, a, there's no such thing as a deaconess. Uh, it's not a word. Teachers, they were church planters and even elders. So anyway, uh, let's, let's talk for a minute. Um, you invited me to dive into this. That's what I'm doing. Let's talk for a minute about women in leadership in the church in 2018. First of all, can we just acknowledge that for many of us, our experience in church has been under leadership that is heavily patriarchal? I could take a lot of time to talk about how that came to be because the church didn't start out that way. And if you think that somehow that women in positions of influence and leadership in the church is something new, I'm telling you, it's actually very, very old. It's the church returning to its roots. All you have to do is read the story of the early days of the church in the New Testament. See, we believe that the Bible teaches that men and women were created by God and equally bear His image, yes? And God's intention for, was for men and women to share openness and community, even as like the Godhead experiences oneness within the Trinity. Um, each of them, men and women, had a direct relationship with God and they shared jointly the responsibilities of rearing children and having dominion over creation. However, human oneness was shattered by the fall. 
and the struggle for power and the desire to rule over another is part of the result of human sin. In Genesis 3, verse 16, we get a prediction of the effects of the fall, not a prescription for God's ideal order, not at all. And God has acted to redeem the human race and to offer to all people the opportunity to be a part of the new community, his church. It's God's intention for his children to experience the oneness that exists between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Jesus talked about that in his prayer in John 17. It means that old divisions and hierarchies between genders and races are not to be tolerated in the church because we are all one in Christ Jesus. In the birth of the church at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out on men and women alike, as had been predicted long ago uh, before the coming of Christ, and, you know, like the prophet Joel. In the New Testament, women, as well as men, exercise prophetic and priestly functions. And the Spirit bestows gifts on all members of the new community sovereignly, without giving anyone preferential treatment based on gender. Every believer is to offer her or his gifts for the benefit of the body of Christ. And to prevent believers from exercising this spiritual, their spiritual gifts is to quench the work of the Spirit. There are um, a few isolated texts that appear to restrict the full ministry freedom of women. And the interpretation of those passages has to take into account their relation to the broader teaching of Scripture and their specific context. For example, we know from 2 Timothy 3 that all Scripture is God-breathed, God-inspired, all kinds of different human authors written at different times in different places in different contexts to different audiences, and it all comes together under one divine author. So we know that what is said in one part of the Bible will not contradict ultimately what is said in another part of the Bible because the God who has authored the Bible does not contradict himself. Everything he speaks is true. So when we come to one passage of Scripture, we understand that passage of Scripture in light of the whole of Scripture. In studying Scripture and in seeking to understand and rightly apply Scripture, we have to ask a couple questions. We've got to ask what part of the text is cultural expression, which changes from culture to culture, and what part of the text is central revelation that never changes. Give us an example of scriptural text that is cultural expression where the application of the text changes from culture to culture. Yeah, let me give you an example from a text that can be a little confusing when it comes to gender roles in the church. It's in 1 Timothy 2, a passage where Paul is giving Timothy instructions for when the church comes together to worship. He says, I want women to be modest in their appearance. They should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair or by wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothes. The cultural part of that verse is where he talks specifically about how the women wear their hair and their jewelry and the clothes. Here's his concern. Depending on the context, depending on the culture, the way that you wear your hair, the jewelry that you wear, the clothes that you wear can draw attention to yourself. Uh, here's an example. We just came back from uh, our mission to Guatemala earlier in the month. We know this to be true from just our experience there. We encourage everyone on our team to be cautious about things like jewelry. Because in that context, jewelry can communicate wealth, which can make you a target for crime and can jeopardize your safety. Here's an example. On our most recent mission, just a couple weeks ago, just this month, our host had to ask one of our doctors not to go running in the morning. Because the first couple mornings he went running. And in that part of the city, an American in scrubs, which was all he brought to wear, so an American in scrubs was a target for criminals. They thought, an Ameri they saw an American, they saw Dr. Scrubs, they thought wealth. Now, should our friends stop wearing scrubs in public? 
No, that's not the issue. The issue is what it communicates in that particular setting. See the difference a culture makes, the context makes? So for these uh, women that Paul was writing about, certain hairstyles, certain jewelry, certain clothing was drawing attention to them. And he wasn't saying once and for all in every context and every time period, women shouldn't wear jewelry or whatever. This was contextual. It changes from culture to culture. The part of the text that doesn't change is your worship together as a church. In your worship together as a church, don't draw attention to yourself. Don't draw attention from the God you are worshiping. Cultural context changes. Central revelation does not. So we've got to ask these kinds of questions when we're reading the Bible. And we have to be really careful with this principle because this is where people start irresponsibly throwing all kinds of things out of the Bible. And then they make the Bible say things that into their context that it actually isn't saying. Here's, here's something we have to be aware of. Isolated verses lifted from their context do not represent a scriptural consensus. That's a dangerous way to interpret and apply scripture. Sometimes you have to go outside the scriptural text and into the historical record in order to get an accurate understanding of the context. In fact, it's when we look at the historical record, especially around the churches in Ephesus and Corinth, that Paul's specific instructions for specific women in specific churches starts to make sense. And then it becomes consistent with the rest of the New Testament. It's interesting to me that many, many churches who lean into verses like those in 1 Corinthians 14, where Paul says women should remain silent in the churches, they're not allowed to speak. They, churches who lean into that as a universal prohibition on women from occupying leadership or oversight or teaching roles in the church. Somehow I've seen this to be true that these same people find a way to completely ignore the overall topic of the chapter, which is about worship and tongues and interpretations and prophesying. Now, in the interest of full disclosure and having spent my whole life in non-charismatic evangelical church circles, I can't tell you how many times I've heard this verse about women used out of context to support a restriction on their role. But we're going to just ignore the rest of the passage because it's talking about something we don't understand, aren't comfortable with, would rather just not go there. I'm just, let's just be honest. So having said that, we believe that when the Bible is interpreted comprehensively, it teaches the full equality of men and women in status and giftedness and an opportunity for ministry in the church. The evidence of Scripture and the evidence of history indicates that women were entrusted with the ministry of the Word in the New Testament churches. They were, there were female prophets in Acts 2 and Acts 21. There were female teachers in Acts 18 and Titus 2. There are female church leaders, Romans 16, Philippians 4, Colossians 4, and even a female apostle by the name of Junia in Romans 16. There's no text in the Bible that forbids a woman to be ordained to leadership, to, to teach or to have oversight roles in the church because according to the New Testament, all believers without exception are ordained by God to do ministry on the basis of their spiritual gifts. So is there a ceiling for women in the church? What about being a pastor? Yeah, I love it when, when someone poses the question, well, Todd, can you name a woman who's referred to as a pastor in the New Testament? And my answer to that is no. And then I would like to ask this question, can you name a man who is referred to as a pastor in the New Testament? And the answer to that is no, you can't. No men or women overseers uh, of a church or pastors of a church are named in the New Testament. You're like, well, what about James? Our knowledge of James as the pastor in Jerusalem is found in church history, not in the Bible. So unlike the words elder, apostle, prophet, or teacher, the noun pastor 
isn't actually used in the New Testament as a title or as a description of any specific individual, man or woman, except for Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd in John 10. This is the passage I can't get away from in this discussion. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 3 says, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. This is verse 27. So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile. We're like, amen. Neither slave nor free. Hallelujah. There's neither male nor female. Hmm. We are all one in Christ Jesus. So not only are distinctions of ethnicity and social status condemned to irrelevance in the body of Christ, but also the gender distinction. Because identity with Christ has primacy over all the other characterizations. It means that there is neither male nor female. It means that the gender difference holds no more significance than racial differences or class identifications when it comes to defining the workings of the new community that we know as the church. And the Christian church has almost universally placed restrictions on women's roles in the church from the second century until relatively recently. It's been based on an interpretation of certain passages in the New Testament. The question we have to ask is whether recent changes in perspective are a result of the church being driven by prevailing culture to become inclusive in disregard of Scripture, or whether there's been a genuine flaw in the common interpretation of Scripture by many Christians on this issue for generations. And look, we don't intend to disrespect or disregard the wisdom of previous generations, but we do need to face the fact <coughs> excuse me, we have to face the fact that some long-held views have previously proved to be an error in several instances. We have to own that. Here's an example. The widely accepted justification for slavery by Christians in the 18th and 19th century in America and in Europe. And more recently, I would say the position on the superiority of one race over another. Neither of those issues would be acceptable today in the church as legitimate, biblically justifiable, though both issues were fought for to the point of war by Bible-believing Christians for many years on the basis of their interpretation of certain parts of the Bible. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm sorry. So in the same way, women have traditionally been denied equality with men as a general practice in most societies until fairly recently so the church in the united states has never really had to face this question as honestly and as deeply as it's being forced to today here's the thing though when it comes to applying scripture it's essential that we avoid what's called confirmation bias that is that we not reach a conclusion about what we believe and then tailor our study of scripture to that conclusion that's proof texting it's disrespectful it's dishonoring uh, to the scripture and it's a dishonoring way to apply, interpret and apply the scripture. To be honest, in our study of the New Testament, we have to examine the historical settings of the text, including the texts that seem to restrict the, the ministry of women. The text always has to be interpreted in its context. Sorry, I got a little preachy there. Now what if someone listening to this finds themselves in disagreement with our church leadership on this issue? Should they start to look for another church? Well, I think that's a great question. And I'm, of course, I'm going to say absolutely not. Um, there are, and here's why I say that. Because there are probably lots of issues that you and I and you and I and the other elders or people listening and some of the leadership in the church, there can be lots of issues that we disagree on. For instance, let's just, you want, if we want to just open this up and talk about politics, for example. Or let's talk about how our marriages function. Or let's talk about how we spend our money. Or let's talk about how we raise our kids. See what I'm saying? This is not an issue to break fellowship over. 
We are one in Christ. The Spirit unifies us. We share the essentials of the faith. Even if we disagree on secondary open-hand issues, that's what makes them open-hand issues. That's okay to disagree on some things. There are hundreds of people. Here's, here's the thing we've got to keep in mind. There are hundreds of people all around us who need to experience God's grace and be changed by Jesus. So let's just agree to disagree where we need to, and let's work together for the sake of the gospel. On Sunday, you offered a kind of statement of commitment. Four things that we as a church and as a leadership team are committed to. Would you share those with us? Oh yeah, in our attempts to live together as a biblically functioning community, and as we take our cue from the New Testament, we're committed to these four values. Number one, to provide opportunities for ministry based on giftedness and character and calling without regard to gender. I'll just repeat that, to provide opportunities for ministry based on giftedness and character and calling without regard to gender. Then secondly, to use sensitivity in our language that reflects the honor and value that God desires for men and women. Number three, to be intentional in encouraging women in areas where their giftedness has been traditionally discouraged in the church. And then number four, to teach and model these values to members of our church and in the community at large. That's our commitment. Now I know the reason you taught on this subject on Sunday was that we were ordaining two new elders at Faith Community. And you talked us through how the elders provide leadership and oversight and accountability. And you talked about the process for identifying and vetting new elders and the historical basis for public ordination of church leaders. As we wrap up, would you care to offer a challenge or a point of application to those listening? Yeah, my challenge is simply this. Having heard all this and having looked at the, at the mandate of Scripture, my question is for every listener, would you qualify for a position of leadership in the church? If yes, then are you willing to follow Christ and show others the way? And if not, then what needs to change? What is preventing you from making those changes? Maybe you've been a believer for a long time. Uh, but you know you would not qualify for leadership because of some ongoing sin patterns in your life or because you've failed to mature in certain areas as a believer. Remember, God wants each of us to live a godly life even if we're not leaders, even if we don't have a title. So I would just say choose right now, just choose right now in our following of Jesus to become a person worth following. Well, thank you for listening. This concludes our uh, podcast for today. And uh, if you've enjoyed this format, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, feel free to send me an email, todd at faithcommunityfellowship.com. Um, just let me know what you thought. Uh, Craig and I are interested in doing more of this kind of thing and having some uh, topical conversations. Uh, we welcome your input on that. And uh, thanks a lot for listening, and uh, have a great week.